pray. Father, it is with brokenness and humility that I wish that I had, that I beg of you to speak now. It is your word, it is your spirit, it is your son. I'm just a vessel, an instrument, conduit of your truth. Use me, use your people, open hearts and minds to receive your truth, fill them with your spirit that they may see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand. Give us patience with you and with your timing. Give us patience with your people and with your word. Make us people of prayer. Make us people of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So prayer, prayer is a given in the church, right? We all know you're supposed to pray. We've prayed several times already this morning. You're a Christian. Christians are supposed to pray. Prayer is a given. But do we actually pray? And if we do, do we actually pray biblically? So you might be thinking, is there an unbiblical way to pray? Yeah, there is. And we'll see that in a little bit. The Word of God also, it's also a given in the church. The Bible, we all use the Bible. It's part of our life. We're supposed to read the Bible every day. We're supposed to know the Word of God. We use it at church. We use it at all of our church activities. But do we read it? Do we study it? Do we obey it? So both of these things, the prayer... Prayer and the word would never be rejected in this church as well as, well, you would at least, you would think that prayer and the word wouldn't be rejected in this church. You would think that that prayer and the word wouldn't be rejected in churches throughout America. However, we are finding that to be less and less true as churches all over veer away from biblical truth To satisfy the itching ears of their people. And when I say itching ears, I'm talking about what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, which says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And though that seems far from us, it is actually very close, a very close reality in our church as well as um, just being transparent with you. There have been people leaving our church recently for reasons that are not biblical. And for some of them, will not listen to biblical reasoning. And we'll see why when we get to Acts 28 later. The reality is, and not just speaking of those who've left here, but those who leave churches, those who don't want churches in in America, really all over the world, that are not adhering to the word of God, they want what they want. They just want what they want. They want the things that suit their own passions, not what God gives us in his word. And if I won't give it to them, then they leave. 
That is why we adhere even tighter to the word of God in prayer. Because if we try to live this Christian life without being tethered to the word and in prayer, we will wander off from truth and we will live in sin. And we will choose sin and we'll give up on the church and we'll find a church that suits what I want, not what God says. And every conversation with people who have left, I, I, I ask, what is the issue? They can't pinpoint a particular issue and even qualify their leaving with, well, you're teaching the word. I've never grown so much as I've grown here, but I'm out. Why? And then there's no reason. So, it's not a, that's not, it's not a complaint for me. I want people to understand. And so, what we see is a distraction from the truth instead of an, an attraction to the truth. Because I believe that what we do at Grace Church is preach and teach the word of God. Christian preached and teach the word of God during communion. And he also did so this morning in the Bible study class, the Genesis through Revelation class. Tuesday mornings, preach the word to the women. Or teach the word to the women, not preach. Um, Friday mornings, teach the word to the men. Thursday nights and Friday nights, we have several life groups going on. Um, we have one, two, three, four, five, five life groups going on. All teaching the word. Sermon, teaching the word. Sunday night, youth group, teaching the word. Sunday morning, prayer in my office, 9.30. If you want to come pray, 9.30, come pray with us. We, fill, we pack out my office with people who want to come pray. Okay, my, my, and, and, and how many times have we prayed already this morning? Like seven or eight times? And, and my fear is that there would be people in a church who are sitting through church service or are part of a body of Christ and would see all this like be in the word, be in the word. Here's an opportunity, here's an opportunity, be in the word, be in the word, here's an opportunity, be in the word. And we give you opportunities to be in the word. And we tell you to be in the word on your own. We tell you to teach your families the word. We tell you to be in prayer. And we offer opportunities to pray. And then we pray a lot during service. And we're in the word a lot during service. And my, my, my concern and my my heart breaks at the thought that there could be people who claim to be Christians who sit in a church service and think, too much. Too much prayer. Oh, is he going to pray again? Oh, more word, more teaching. It's so long. Like this lack of desire to be close to God because God demands that the means by which we're close to him is the word and prayer. And if that's not what you're here for, then what are you here for? Right? And so there is an absolute and total need. And when I say need, I can't emphasize that enough. Jesus says that he has a greater need for God than food or water. And like you would literally die without food or water. So our need for God, which, is, which comes through the word and prayer, is... The word need just doesn't cut it. It's greater than need. It's desperation. And if we don't stay tethered to the word, and if we don't stay in prayer, we will wander off from the truth, we will live in sin, and we will risk revealing that there may not actually be genuine salvation in our hearts. 
So what we'll see in today's text is that Paul emphasizes two things, the importance and the power of both prayer and the word. Colossians 4.2, Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So prayer and thanksgiving should never be like dissociated from each other. They're always connected as prayer is both the product of thankfulness to God as well as a means to produce thankfulness to God. Paul gives us only one command in this entire text, and that command is this. Continue steadfastly in prayer. The fact that this is a command is meaningful because the main reason we do not pray is because we don't feel like it. I mean, honestly, like, that's my, when I don't pray, it's just, a, it's a mood thing, right? Or, or like a time thing. And even if it's a time thing, maybe I'm too busy to pray, it's not about, I know it's not about my schedule. I know it's about my heart. I know I'm not in the mood. So whether it's the mood that's keeping me, or I'm just really busy, or maybe I'm just too upset, or maybe I'm too hurt, or anxious, or depressed, or whatever, I've got all these reasons to not pray. Yet, as a command, because it's a command, we're commanded here to pray continuously and steadfastly. As a command, your feelings or your mood or your situation is irrelevant to your biblical responsibility to pray. Now, that sounds kind of like, you know, waving the finger, you have to pray anyways, but there's, there's a softer reason for it. What it means is that even when you're not in the mood, even when you're super busy, even when you're upset or you're hurting or you're anxious or you're depressed or you're struggling or you're happily happy or you're especially if you're sinning, pray. Not only because those, all of those situations are situations in which you need God, but also because he commands it. So why would God command prayer? Why would he command us to pray? Why wouldn't he say, you know what, pray when you feel like it because I only want you praying when you feel like praying. I don't want you coming to me with your I don't really feel like it prayers, but I have to. God doesn't want that attitude. So why would he command it if he only wants us to do it? Why not just suggest it? Why not even clarify in scripture, pray to me when you feel like praying to me so that it's genuinely good prayer? Why would he just say, do it anyways? Because... Believe it or not, God knows what's best for you, right? I mean, we all know that. You tell your kids that all the time. You give your children commands that they don't like. They might not want in that moment, but it's still a command we give them. Why? Because you, as a parent and an adult, are older, wiser, smarter, more knowledgeable, and you just know what's best for them. So you give them commands that are good for them. God knows what's best for you. He knows that he is best for us. Prayer is an expression of dependence and trust and faith and reliance on God. When you're anxious, Paul commands us in Philippians 4, 6 to pray with thankfulness. Just as he commands us here to pray with thankfulness. Because the conqueror of your anxiety is God. About whom Psalm 46, 1 says... God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. This is why thanksgiving should not be separated from prayer, because when we consider how God has helped us in our life, it should always produce thanksgiving. 
since all that God does for his children is for their good. So God is all-knowing. We all agree on that, I assume, that God knows all things. In fact, the idea of knowing a thing or that there's a thing to be known only exists because God created his existence God created the reality of there to be things that can be known, and the idea of knowing or having the capacity to know is only a reality that God creates, which he's not subjected to, but determines. So knowing all things is not just like, oh, he's the really the smartest person that exists. No, the idea of existence is his idea. So him knowing all things is actually a concept that should rather blow our minds, to be quite frank. But he is all-knowing, and in his infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge, he knows himself perfectly. And he knows us, his created beings, perfectly. And in all that infinitely perfect knowledge, he says, pray with thanksgiving. Do you think maybe God knows something we don't know? That maybe when he gives you a command, it's like, trust me, this is good for you. Like, pray to me and be thankful in your prayers. Like, there has to be a reason. There has to be something good about this. Think about it. If you planned to go to, like, the fair, right? Wasn't that Osceola Fair this weekend? Maybe it's still going on. I don't know. Let's say you plan to go to the fair today. And then you watch the Weather Channel or you look it up on your phone and it says there's a 100% chance, a 100% chance of severe thunderstorms and tornadoes directly at the fairgrounds. And the weatherman tells you stay indoors, don't go outside. There's also an extreme amount of lightning, stay indoors. Would you go to the fair? No. Why? Because you believe that the meteorologist knows more about the knows more than you about the weather and you trust his analysis right how much more trustworthy is god than the weatherman how much more accurate knowledgeable wise and believable is god so if he instructs you on what to do you can trust him whose knowledge and wisdom is infinitely perfect, far more than you can trust a meteorologist, and yet we are far more prone to believe a meteorologist than we are God. And I can say that because we sin, right? And every time we sin, it is an act of disbelief in God. At the root of every sin is a lack of faith and a disbelief. It's a disbelief about who God says he is. It's a disbelief about the promises that come with obedience. It's a disbelief and lack of faith in the consequences that God tells us in his word come with disobedience. Every time we sin, it's a lack of belief. It's, a, it's an act or a, an expression of I don't believe in God. I was talking with Christian about this last night. I'm like, man, dude, there are, I just think about this yesterday. There are angels watching me sin and I think they're going like they're in the presence of the almighty God a God that is genuinely infinitely unfathomable to us and they're in his presence and there are literally angels who spend 
every second of their existence worshiping God in joy that you have never felt. That's how gloriously, unbelievably, unfathomably great and wonderful he is. And we sin, and I think there are angels watching us sin and going, God, God do, you, do, do they not know who you are? Like, look at what they're doing. They're choosing, Romans 1, creation over the creator because they see him. They know what he's like, and they watch us and go, what are you doing? How do you think the Holy Spirit feels? Listen, God doesn't command prayer so to burden your day with more commands. Because that's what Christianity feels like a lot of times. A burden. Oh, I gotta pray. Oh, I gotta read. Oh, I gotta go to church. Oh, I gotta go to Bible study. Oh, I gotta go to prayer. Oh, I gotta, oh, oh, oh. It's just, it's a burden. And then you come to church and your pastor says, you got to do this and you got to do that and you got to do this and you got to do that. And it's like so much demanding, so much demanding. God does not demand the command to burden you. He says that obedience is burdenless. And he doesn't command us to burden us. He commands us to bless you with joy because he knows in his infinite knowledge and wisdom, that he is the best thing for you and thus he offers you the best blessing that you could possibly obtain, which is the joy and the pleasure of communion with him. As Psalm 1611 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, Paul's got gives us this command that we ought to be praying, and then Paul makes in verse three a request. So, in addition to prayer being good for you and good for me, good for ourselves, prayer is also good for others. In verse three, verses three through four, Paul makes a prayer request to the Colossians. He also makes a prayer request to the Ephesians that's very similar, and we'll see that in a second. But he says in verses three through four, Colossians four three through four. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So let me give you a little context. Okay, it's about early 60s A.D. Paul is writing a letter to the Colossians. He, it's about the same time, he's also writing a letter to the Ephesians. And what Paul is looking forward to is an opportunity to do something awesome. And the things that, the two, there are two things that Paul asks the Ephesians and the Colossians to pray for. Okay, so he makes a prayer request in the book of Ephesians, in the letter to the Ephesians, and he makes this same prayer request here in Colossians 4, it's the same prayer request that he has the opportunity to do two things. And those two things are to preach boldly and that in that boldness he would preach the mystery of Christ. So there are two things he wants. Boldness in preaching the mystery of Christ. And we'll see why. Because Paul's asking the Colossians and the Ephesians that God would open a door for the word. And what is the word that Paul needs a door open for? The mystery of Christ. And why do we say that he needs boldness? We'll see when we get to Ephesians. But 
what Paul is, what, what really ultimately happens is that at the end of Acts, we see that this prayer request is answered. Because at the end of Acts, Paul goes to Rome, and it's not long after this, not even a, a year or two, a couple years after Paul asks, makes these prayer requests, the prayer request gets answered when he goes to Rome at the, end of, at the end of Acts chapter 28. So really, what is Paul's prayer request about? His prayer request is that the word of God would be declared. And that is such a significant prayer. Though Paul does ask for prayer throughout his letters, he asks for prayer in a lot of his letters, he's usually asking for help for his brothers and sisters, but rarely, rarely does his request have anything to do with anything other than those people's ministry of the word. This only further validates the importance of the word in the church. Without this word, we're lost and we're helpless. And believers can often consider the word of God as like supplemental, or at least we treat it like it's supplemental. It's supplemental to the rest of our life, or... It's supplemental to something really good, like having the Holy Spirit, as if the Word of God is just this guide that we go to in times of need, or it's something that we teach and preach like once or twice a week at church. But Paul doesn't diminish the value of the Word in that way. He elevates the value of the Word by essentially stating that his prayer request is not about him being freed from prison, because look at verse 4, on account of which I am in prison. He doesn't ask to be released from prison. His prayer request is that in his imprisonment, in his suffering, the word of God would be proclaimed. So Paul elevates the word of God over all circumstances, all situations, all hardships, all sufferings, all difficulties. He elevates the preaching, teaching, and opportunity to reveal the word of God. And that's exactly what happened because when Paul gets to Rome at the end of Acts, he's still in chains, he's still imprisoned, and yet he's able to preach the gospel for two years in Rome. So Paul is revealing his absolute and total dependence on the word which comes through his prayer request to the Colossians and to the Ephesians. Even as he asks for boldness in preaching, he's not, he's not, it is not his preaching that he's trying to elevate. He's not asking for boldness so he can just look like a great preacher. It's the message that he's asking to be elevated. It's the message from the word of God that he wants to see elevated. So in verse 4, when Paul says, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak, we know that he's asking for boldness there in his preaching. Because in Ephesians 6.19 is this prayer to the Ephesians that's just like the Colossian prayer. And Paul asks in the Ephesian prayer the same request, and he says in Ephesians 6, 19, pray also for me that, so here's the prayer request, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim what? The mystery of the gospel. Look at Colossians 4, 3. What does he want to declare? The mystery of Christ. It's the same prayer, except Ephesians teaches us that what Paul's really asking for is boldness to preach the mystery of the gospel or the mystery of Christ. And he goes on, for which I am an ambassador in chains, again, saying I'm in prison, that I may declare it boldly, says it again, as I ought to speak, which is exactly what he says at the end of verse 4 in Colossians 4. Same prayer request. So when Paul asked for prayer from the Colossians that he 
speak as he ought to, he tells us in Ephesians 6 that that means that they pray that Paul would be able to speak or preach the mystery of Christ or the mystery of the gospel with boldness. And that's exactly what he does at the end of Acts. And that prayer gets answered with a resounding yes from God. In Acts 28, 30 through 31, it says, He lived there two whole, talking about Paul, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He gets his request for boldness answered in Rome, not long after he asked for the prayer request. So we got the answer to boldness, and in a minute we'll see the answer to does he get to reveal the mystery of Christ, because he asked for that too. But though his boldness is about his form of speech, right? Like, you could look at me as your preacher and say, you know, Pastor Mark really speaks with boldness and maybe like passion, or, you know, you could look at another preacher who's the opposite of me, like, oh, he's got a lot of, he's very like contemplative and like, you know, mellow, and I like that. Maybe you have a preference for a type of, or style of preaching, and that's fine. But just keep in mind that Scripture gives no clarity, no clarity on style of preaching. In fact, Paul himself says, I don't even know, like, Moses, I, can't, I, I don't know how to talk. God's like, I'll do it for you. Paul, he's like, I came to you with, like, foolish words. I, I'm not a good orator. I'm not a good speaker. And Paul literally says to the Corinthians, that, is, I, that happened on purpose so that you wouldn't think it was me, but that you would know it's the Holy Spirit who's speaking through me. That through my silly inability to speak well and to have this great oration as I preach, you wouldn't go, Paul's a great preacher. But that you would say, the Holy Spirit spoke through him. And the evidence is watching people get saved. So this boldness that Paul asked for is not about his form of speech. I mean, it, it is about the way in which he preaches, but the prayer is not about Paul or his speaking ability. The motivation for Paul is not that he would be a good speaker, but that through his boldness in speaking, the word of God would be delivered and believed. His prayer is not about Paul. His prayer is about the word. His prayer for boldness is not so Paul would look like a great preacher, but that the word of God would be heard. Meaning Paul value, Paul's value on scripture is just so supreme. The truth from God that is the word of God is the only guide we have in the church. It's all we have. If we believe that we don't need the word that much because, say, we have the spirit, then I would rebuttal that you can't be filled with the Spirit if you're not in the Word. Ah, oh, we don't need the Word that much. I got the Holy Spirit. You know how many times I have conversations with people who tell me God's telling me to fill in the blank, whatever. God's telling me to do this or that thing. And this or that thing is either clearly a sin in the Bible or it's directed against in Scripture. And when I bring that up to people sometimes, what rebuttal I hear back often is, well, I trust God. The Holy Spirit's telling me this. God knows my heart. That's not true. 
That's not true. That can't be. You cannot say that the Holy Spirit or God or Jesus, whatever one you want to pick, is telling you to do something that Scripture tells you not to do. It's, it can't be. So the only way to know what the Spirit wants and how He leads, and the only way to really be directed and guided by the Spirit is to be in the Word. Because the Word is the source that He uses to lead us. Scripture is not supplemental to the Spirit, but rather the filling of the Spirit is the product of being in the Word. And that is important because the Word of God is all we have. Spirit helps us know the Word and live the Word, but without the Word, the Spirit has no source to point us toward, and the church is lost. And we get this from Proverbs 29, 18, which says, there is, Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraints, but blessed is he who keeps the law. The words prophetic vision there is a reference to God's word. Prophetic vision is what the prophets brought in the Old Testament. And what did the prophets always say in the Old Testament? God spoke to the prophet and the prophet would go to the people. And what would he say? Thus says the Lord. What are the prophets saying? The word of God. They're saying what God told them to say. Okay. And then Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says... Long ago, God spoke to us through our forefathers and the prophets, but today he speaks to us through his son, which is the word, right? Revelation 19, 13, that Jesus is the word of God. So now he speaks to us through the word. Okay, so a prophetic vision is the words of the prophets, and today the prophetic vision is the word of God, which now pastors and preachers take on that role of speaking on behalf of God and bringing the word of God to you and saying, thus says the Lord. And without it, without the word, what are we? We're without restraint. And notice that we're not just like without restraint, but notice that we cast off. That's an intentional activity. Without the word of God, we remove intentionally the restraints that keep us in line with God. Meaning we need God's word to keep us from sin. We need God's word to keep us from sin. Meaning, if you're not in God's word, not only is not being in his word a sin in and of itself, but not being in his word will cause you to sin. And here's the difficult part. A lot of people say, well, that's not true for me. The, the reason it is true for you, but you don't know it's true for you, is because you're not in the Word, so you don't have eyes to see your sin because you don't have the book convicting you of the things you're doing. This morning, as Christian was leading us in 1 John chapter 1, which, oh my goodness, so good. So good. Spirit-led. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It was, I'm just, I wanted to scream amen. I thought I'd be distracting, so I didn't. But as he was going through it, and he's talking about just, and, and John's just writing over and over again, like, confess your sin, 
Don't tell me you don't have sin. If you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. All right? Like, and confess. And God is so good to forgive you of your sin and make her. And as he's preaching, I'm just like convicted. I'm just being convicted. I'm sitting there going, oh my goodness, I have so much unconfessed sin. So much. And I'm sitting there feeling overwhelmed to the point where I'm literally sitting there going, I got to preach in like five minutes and I don't feel like I'm worthy to preach the word of God. As God just, the Holy Spirit just convicted me of my sin. Who convicted me? Was it Christian? Was it Pastor Christian's preaching? Nope. Is it my preaching that convicts you? Nope. Is it the way that I speak? The mannerisms I use, the passion I preach with, or maybe the, the low tone that draws you. Is all, is all that stuff convict you? No. The Word of God convicts you. It's the Word of God that does the work. And we need it to know our sin. And when we are in God's Word, Proverbs 29.18 says this, we will keep God's commands. And thus Listen, and thus, be blessed. Isn't that what you want? To be blessed? I do. There's nothing selfish about saying, I want to be blessed. God repeats over and over in his word, I want to bless you, 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 I want to bless you so much, I want to give you everything your heart desires as long as your heart desires what I desire. I want to bless you. I want to show you the goodness of myself. The father of goodness wants to reveal the goodness of himself. He's a God rich in mercy, full of gifts and wonderful things, and he wants to lavish you in them. What do you think heaven's about? It's all about God blessing you eternally with the unfathomable greatness of his glory. And all the riches of heaven are ours. That's blessing. God wants to bless you. But here's the thing. He doesn't bless you when you do it your way. The blessing comes when we do it his way. I can't stand up here and preach to you that God's going to bless things that he doesn't promise he will bless. Okay, I'll give you an example. If, some, if you just, like, say you're broke, you have no money, and, so, and you're just like, you get this random hospital bill shows up, and it's like $1,214.70, and you're like, um, okay, God, I need help because I don't have money, and I've got this, this bill to pay, and I'm going to be behind on the mortgage, and, uh, and you're stressed, and then God, and you pray, and God, and someone knocks on your door and like, hey, man, I don't know what's going on, but like, I just felt spirit-led to write you a check for $1,214.70. I don't know why. Here you go. Would you look at that and go, hmm, I wonder where that came from. You would know that that was God, right? And would you call that a blessing? Because I would, right? Here's the question. Is that a promise in the Bible? It's not. You're not promised that in the Bible. What if God desires that you be broke for a period of time in order to cause your absolute broken, humbled dependence on him. Because he can do that too. He doesn't have to write you the check. But if he writes you the check, that's a blessing. 
It's not promised, so I'm not going to stand here and tell you that that's a promise you get or that's a blessing you get because it's not promised. But you know what blessing? Or if he gives you the other thing, which is no money, hardship, humbled, broken dependence on him, is that a blessing? Yes. In fact, I'd say it's a better blessing. And that may be what he blesses you with. So when we talk about being blessed, the only blessings that I can preach to you are the ones that God promises. And the blessing that God promises to you is if you are in my word, if your church follows the word, if your church is in the word, I will bless you. Because in the word, you will keep my commands. God blesses obedience. That's what Proverbs 29, 18 is telling us. And we have to, in order to be obedient, we've got to be in the word. So the word of God is the church's greatest and most important object because it tells us who God is and what he's like and what he commands and how we ought to worship him and how we ought to pray. Now, Paul's prayer request is not just that he would preach boldly, which God answered, because we saw that in Acts 28, 30-31, that Paul did end up in Rome preaching boldly for two years, right? But also that he would preach the mystery of Christ boldly. So the question is, what is the mystery of Christ? Ephesians 3, 6, Paul says what the mystery is. He says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery is that the Gentiles, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too, can be saved by the Messiah. This is a mystery because salvation is first for the Jews. That's what it looks like in Scripture. When you read the Old Testament and you read the Gospels, it looks like Christ is for the Jews. The Messiah is for the Jews. He's the promise to the Jews from Abraham all the way up, actually from, from the fall when God curses when God curses Adam, Eve, Adam and Eve and Satan at the fall, he preaches the gospel right there and then. The first time we see that gospel of Christ come to life. And from then on, there's this promise to God's people who become the Jews. And we see it in Abraham that there's going to be a Messiah for his people. So it looks like it's for the people of Israel all this time. And then we get to the New Testament and we get past the gospels and we see what happens in the gospels. We see it in John 1.11. In John 1.11, we see how the Jews respond to Jesus. It says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So the Jews rejected the gift of God, they rejected the gospel, and they rejected Jesus. Therefore, how does God respond? John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Because the gospel of Christ was for the Jews first. But God's plan was, always was, this mystery that he didn't tell anyone about, which is the Jews are never going to receive this gospel. The Jews are never going to receive the Messiah. And it's a mystery hidden for ages. We see that in Ephesians 3, 9. Paul says this is a, his, a mystery hidden for ages. And the mystery is that the Gentiles get salvation too. Because for thousands of years, the Jews are like, the Messiah is for us. 
And then the Messiah shows up and the Jews are like, we don't want him. And God says, fine, I'll give it to the Gentiles then. Which, by the way, was always the plan. Which is what Paul is revealing. That this was a mystery hidden for ages, now revealed in us through the church that everybody can be saved. Meaning, this was always God's plan and to save the world and that anybody, can, anybody who believes can be part of the church and a part of the kingdom of God. To the first century unbelieving Jew, this is massively offensive. To the first century Gentile, it's like freedom, life, and grace, and goodness, and joy. And this prayer request that Paul would be able to preach the mystery was needed. And we'll see why it's needed in the way that Paul preaches to the Jews in Acts 28, 23 through 28. So Acts 28, 23 through 28, I'm going to read. Paul's in Rome, right? And now the verses in Acts 28 I read earlier are the last two verses in the entire book of Acts, okay? And those were that, you know, Paul ends up in Rome two years and proclaims boldly the kingdom of God. But right before those two verses, we find this text. Because Paul asked for what two things? Boldness and to reveal the mystery of Christ. We see in the last two verses of Acts 28, he, he gets the answer, he gets his prayer answered and he has boldness. And what we see in these verses, 23 through 28, are that Paul gets that prayer answered to reveal the mystery. So look at how the mystery is revealed. Verse 23, middle of 23. From morning till evening, he expounded to them. Now just stop there for a second. I want you to... I want to shepherd you well, okay? I want you to put this text into two contexts. I want you to put it in the context that it's in right here in Acts, okay? Paul's in Rome. He's getting his prayers answered. This is revealing how his prayers are answered. I also want you to put it in the context of our church. As people walk away from the word of God that we teach and preach so much. And to the, to the complaints in this church about too many Bible studies, too much Bible, too much prayer, which to me is like, what? Can a Christian even say that? Listen to what Paul listen to what Paul does. From morning till evening he expounded them. Morning till evening. Well we started church at 10. Well we had Bible study first at 8:30. So who wants to stay here till 10 o'clock tonight? Just, just be in the word all day together. Morning till evening. Do you know how many Americans in church right now would be like, uh, not me? Right? Now listen. That's so far beyond what we're used to, that would feel like overkill, for sure. But my point is, look at the hunger. Look at the hunger these people have. From morning till evening. He expounded to them. And no one left until later. And what does he do? Testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. Now, what happens? Verse 24, some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. 
and disagreeing among themselves. Listen to what happens. There's disagreement. So some believe, some don't. And in that disagreement, they're like, oh, I don't know. I mean, he said this. Well, yeah, but he said that. And I'm like, the people who disagree haven't left yet until Paul says one thing. And you know what that one thing is? It's a statement on God's absolute and total sovereignty over who gets saved and who doesn't. So God's sovereignty becomes a means of division in the church in Rome. Well, I shouldn't say in the church because the church believed it and, the non, and those who aren't the church don't believe it and they don't become a part of the church and they leave. And so they departed after Paul made one statement and he says, Paul, Paul says to them, to the Romans, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But they don't. Verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. They will listen. Paul preached the word of God, the kingdom of God, the law of Moses, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and what he reveals here is the mystery of Christ. That God's plan was that Israel would reject Christ so that the gospel could go to the Gentiles. And Paul spoke it so boldly, it created the vision where the unbelievers don't have ears or eyes to see it or to hear it, and they left. They couldn't handle the truth. They couldn't handle the word. They couldn't handle God's sovereignty. They couldn't handle the boldness of the word. They couldn't handle the mystery of Christ. They left. Well, the man preaching the truth, filled with the Holy Spirit, declares the word of God, and the people who leave go, that's not spirit. That's not God. I'm out. Sounds very familiar to what I see happen in church. That's exactly what happened in the Roman church. And so God takes the gospel, he, offers, he gives Paul this opportunity, and he answers Paul's desire to preach the mystery of Christ, which is that the Gentiles get it too, and we see it come to life in Acts 28. And he says, fine, the Jews don't want to listen, then God has commanded me to take it to the Gentiles. They will listen. And I look across this body of people right now, and I look at you and I say, they, they want to listen. That brings me great joy. And if you want to leave because you don't want to listen, then my only plead to you, my only prayer for you, is that you would open your eyes and open your ears to what the Spirit of God is preaching to you in His Word. Don't listen to me. Don't take my word for it. Don't complain about what Pastor Mark does or what Pastor Christian does or what Brian does or what some other believer in your church does. Don't, don't worry about them. Listen to the Spirit who speaks the truth from God's Word. 
I can't give you anything else. I can't do anything more for you as a pastor but tell you what God says. If I do anything else but that, I run the risk of going to hell. And I mean that seriously. I'm not being dramatic for preaching purposes. I risk going to hell for telling you anything other than this word. And when I do, and I watch people walk away from it and say, I'm leaving your church. Thank you for teaching me the word of God. I've never grown so much in my life, but I think your church is just going in a different direction than I want to go. And I go, we're going in the direction God commands. Where are you going? And to tell me that your interpretation of what I said is more spirit-filled than the word of God that I'm preaching, I don't know what to tell you. And my heart breaks for those people. My heart breaks for you if you're feeling that tension as well. Because I'm looking at you and I'm saying, you don't need me. And you don't need Christian. You don't need Brian. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. And this, this is where we find him. Anything other than this, anything other than this is a waste of time. Listen, the kids play games at youth group. Huge waste of time. Seriously. But... I'm totally loved that they do. Like, I'm so glad that those kids play at youth group. You know, in a sense, it's a huge waste of time. In a sense, it's not. There's a lot of good things that come from it. There's camaraderie and playfulness and joy. They get out some energy so they can sit and listen to the word. I'm all for letting the kids play. But, like, there's this other side of me that's just like, what if we were just in the word from morning till evening, like Paul was? What if, instead of having... You know, church on Sunday and then Bible study on Tuesday morning and Bible study on Friday morning and some life groups at night and, you know, Wednesday night. Oh, I forgot about earlier. I forgot about Wednesday night family discipleship that happens here too and then kid town and all these things. What if instead that everybody in this church quits their job? Yeah? Everyone quit their job, will come to church every day at 8 a.m. You know what? No. Sacrifice sleep. 6 a.m. And we'll study the Bible from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. And you can go home and go to bed. We'll get up and do it again. We'll feed you. We'll have to feed you. You don't have a job anymore. So, (laughs) now, of course, that's ridiculous. Like, no, we're not going to do that. But, like, there's this half of my brain and my heart and my soul that says, well, that's what we're going to do in heaven. Like, that's all we're going to do. Like, why can't we just do it here? And it's like, well, because that's not how God ordained our lives. Like, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, live the life that God has called you to live, which means you have a job, and you have a family, and you live in Osceola or St. Croix Falls or wherever you live, and and you do these things. And that's the life you're supposed to live because that's the life God gave you. So I get that, and that's fine. And and, and we should. And, you know, you got to go to work, and you got to make money. you got to provide for your family. Yeah, yeah, I get all that. And I would never tell you not to do those things. But then there's this part of me that's like, let's just give up everything in life, like totally depend on God to just drop money in our laps, and we all just study the Bible every day, all day. And I know it sounds ridiculous to you, because it's so extreme from what we're used to, because what we're used to is I come to God for one hour a week, and when church goes to an hour and a half, I'm like, ugh, still here? Like, that's the American mentality. It really is, because churches consume consumerism. What is it going to give me? And then my objective is uh, this. 
That's it. Which should change that mentality. So, it is the word of God that creates that division and that separation. Paul gets his prayer request answered, the mystery is revealed, the Gentiles get saved, and Paul preached boldly. Prayer request answered. But with this mystery, the question is this, why would God keep the Jews from believing so that the gospel could go to the Gentiles and they would believe. But why would God want the Gentiles to believe? Because he says in Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Because God has an idea of the church and we see the idea of the church come to life in Revelation 7.9. John sees in the future, he sees the revealed mystery come to life in eternity when he sees a vision of the future worship of the Lamb, in Revelation 7, 9, he writes, after this I looked. Okay, so this is the mystery completed. After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's heaven. Eternal joy and worship with a representation from every people group on earth. This was God's plan from the beginning to have all people groups represented as they worship him. And in order for that to happen, the Jews had to reject the Messiah. And Paul had to preach with boldness. And in the Jews' rejection, Paul would take the gospel to the Gentiles in whom God would fulfill his eternal will to be worshipped and to get what he says he wants throughout all the, the entire Old Testament, which is that his name would be known throughout all the earth. So Paul's prayer request involves a much bigger picture of eternity and God's glory throughout the entire earth and into eternal life. You see his theology here? Paul's prayer is so big. It's eternal. It's gospel. It's kingdom. It's glorious. It's large. And then when we pray, we're like, God, help me. My toenail hurts. We tend to pray so... Not, not that you can't pray for that. I'm not saying you can't. But like, if we, we, we've got to think bigger. I'm like... We tend to be so internally focused and so narrowly focused on ourselves and our problems that we are typically only motivated to pray when we are in need. Now, that's actually good that if in need, your instinct is to pray. Because Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me. Are you in need? Come to me. Are you sad? Come to me. Are you anxious? Come to me. Are you depressed? Come to me. Are you worried? Come to me. Are you tired? Come to me. Are you overworked? Come to me. Are you too busy? Come to me. Do you not have time for your wife and kids? Come to me. Is your, are your children disobedient? Come to me. Is your wife not submissive? Come to me. Is your husband not love you? Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. So in your need, going to Jesus is the answer. So praise God if that's what you do. However, Paul's prayer isn't for his grandma who's in the hospital or for safe travels on his vacation. There's nothing wrong praying for those things, but those are trivial and earthly needs that tend to be our primary reasons for praying. And they fill our prayer requests, but Paul teaches us a better way to pray. 
Our prayers ought to be for the church. Our prayers ought to be for the advancement of the gospel into unreached people groups. Our prayer ought to be for missions. Our prayer to be that Christ is exalted here in Grace Church through the sanctification of his people. Our prayer ought to be that we would endure suffering as a result of our sacrifice and that in that suffering we would find joy and peace and contentment in Christ because that's the blessing. That's the promise. Not that you won't suffer, not that you won't sacrifice, but that in those things, and no matter what your circumstances are, you would have joy, peace, and contentment in Christ. That's the promise. That's the blessing. That's how we ought to pray. Can God bless you in your travels and keep you safe? Yes, and he does. Praise God, and you should pray for it. Can God heal your grandma in the hospital? Yes, and he does, and you should pray for it. But are you promised those results? No. What are we promised? John 16, 33 is what we're promised. Jesus said, I have said these things to you, and this is why, that in me you may have peace. Jesus, why do I need peace? Would we all agree that peace is a blessing from God? Yes. Why do we get peace? Why do we need peace, Jesus? Because he goes on and says, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We are promised tribulation. And the blessing is that in tribulation, we are blessed with peace in Christ. So I say all this to point us to the power of prayer, which is often our attempt to get what we want, right? It always, it's usually like just this is what I want, God. Even if we're humble in our asking, even if we're like, I don't know if you want this for me, God, but this is what I want. And if you don't want to give it to me, that's fine. So that's like a humble prayer, and that's fine. That's good. That's good humility in prayer. But prayer is not intended to give you what you want. Prayer is intended to give you what God wants. But ultimately, the aim is that God in prayer, what prayer is ultimately meant to do, if done biblically, is to give you what you want. And this is why we must not only pray, but we must also be in the word. Because 1 John 5, 14 through 15, John writes, If we ask anything according to his will, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. In order to get what you want from God, you have to be praying for that which he wants for you. And to pray for that which he wants for you, you must know what he wants for you. And to know what he wants for you, you must be in the word. Developing in you the mind of Christ. And to have the mind of Christ, we must have the Holy Spirit working fervently in us, whom we get filled with through communion with God in prayer. Prayer and the word are inseparable and they're irreplaceable. And if we are tenaciously pursuing Jesus in the word and in prayer, regardless of our desire to do so, even if you don't have a desire to do these things, but doing them because he commands us to, then our prayers, though certainly filled with requests for things like healing and health, will also be filled with words like those that Jesus spoke in Luke twenty-two forty-two. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. None of us have perfected prayer, right? And if you're thinking, well, I, don't, I just don't know how to pray. I'm not good at praying. 
We all need to continue to practice the godly discipline of of prayer. It's way too vital to your life. It's way too vital to your eternal life. It's way too vital to the church. It's way too vital to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Too vital to your children and to your wife and to your husband and to your family. It's too vital not to pray. It's too important. If you're thinking, I don't know how to pray, I don't pray, I don't pray well, I'm not that, or, or I don't want to pray publicly because I don't know how to pray. I, I was writing this sermon. I got done. I drove home last night. I drove past these uh, 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 industrial buildings over here, and they just last week put up a new um, like digital board in the, in the front yard of this big industry building right across like, from the open field. And they had a quote on it. Last night as I was driving home, I was like, that quote fits perfectly with my sermon. I'm going to use it. And the quote is, better a diamond with flaws than a pebble without. Better to pray poorly than not pray at all. God doesn't care what words you use. He's looking at your heart. He wants you, not your eloquent words. Jesus even condemned eloquent, eloquent prayerful words. In Matthew 6, don't worry about what your prayer's like. Just pray. He just wants your heart and your mind and your words. And you know what? When I was eight years old, my dad said, my brother was, he's like five years older, five or six years older than me. My brother was a really good basketball player. My dad looked at me and he goes, Mark's not, he's going to be the one kid in our family who's just not an athlete. When I was eight years old, then I picked up a basketball do you think I was Michael Jordan when I picked up a basketball at eight years old? No. I looked like a three-year-old trying to dribble a basketball. I was terrible at it. And you know what? I ended up playing college basketball. Well, believe it or not, guess how? I practiced. That's it. I just did it a lot. That's all. I just did it a lot. How do you get good at a video game? You play it a lot. How do you get good at reading? You read a lot. How do you get good at prayer? You pray a lot. We just have to practice. We need not only practice the discipline of continual and consistent prayer, and we need not only practice the discipline of fervent, ambitious, and reverent prayer, but we also must practice the godly discipline of biblical prayer, praying for that which God commands us to pray for. And we must endure in prayer even when we feel unanswered. We must trust God in his command to pray and we must be watchful in it to, to have thanksgiving in our prayer. And the only way we will find motivation to increase our godly discipline of prayer is if we are motivated by the word of God to do so because it is from the word of God that we find our creator directing us in how we ought to live. Depending on a once a week sermon to motivate you for seven days will never be sufficient. If you want fervent, dependent, and fruitful prayer life, you must be in the Word. So that we are no longer asking for blessings that we have not been promised, but so that we are asking for blessings that God promises. Because God wants to bless you which he promises to do when we do it his way. Let's pray. We love you, Lord. We're thankful for you. Make us a people of prayer. Make us a people of prayer. Lord, make us a people who pray, cause prayer. Make us dependent on prayer. Even now, right now as we pray, let the words that were just preached, let your word 
sink in to the hearts and minds. And I mean like absorb, not just I heard those words and now I forget them, but that the word of God, that your word, Father, would penetrate their thoughts, create convictions, and determine change in their lives and in all of our lives to cause us to pray more and to be in your word so that our prayers are your desires, so that we are praying your promises and your blessings which you will fulfill and give to us. Why, God? So that you would give us joy. Make us a people of prayer. Help us to download your word, process it, and then use it functionally in our lives. We cannot do that without you. We count on your spirit to work and move. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. We don't have a song today, so just thank you guys for being here. Have a wonderful week. You're dismissed.